Joshua chapter 8 tonight. Two weeks ago, we learned about the sin of Achan in Israel. After the fall of Jericho, God's wrath burned against Israel because one man had coveted and taken some of the spoils of Jericho for himself. And when God, or when God had made clear that they belonged exclusively to him, as all our hearts and desires and worship do, belong exclusively to him. And so when Joshua logically and in accordance with God's word and promise led Israel to attack the next city, or really a settlement, there's quite a bit of um, debate and scholarship as to where AI or I was but we don't have to get into all that. It's kind of boring. It's just uh, standing between Israel and the promised land. When Joshua led them to attack, they were defeated. After their first major victory, they're defeated by a much less formidable force than Jericho. God revealed the reason to Joshua, and the issue was addressed. The sin had to be removed from the camp of Israel if God was to remain with them, if He was going to keep leading them on this conquest. And so, Achan and his whole family were executed. And we learned in that that this is the predicament the whole human race is in if the sin in and among us is not dealt with. God will not be for us if there's sin in the way. He will be against us. And so, when we look at a picture like that, what we're really seeing is that Christ stepped in to accomplish God's plan and give His life as a ransom that all who receive His salvation would be led into the promised land so that everything that was in the way of this happening would be addressed for all eternity. Tonight, in chapter 8, we get another picture of end-time salvation or the fulfillment of God's promise of salvation is what I mean by that. When Yahweh, the Lord, returns to Israel and gives them the victory. The victory at I in the very next chapter reveals to us that after sin has been dealt with, after judgment has been executed, all that remains is God's presence and God's blessing for His people. So let me pray and we'll dig in here. Our Father, we thank You this night once more for Your Word in the book of Joshua to your people. God, I pray that you would make its point plain to us tonight, that you would help me preach to that end and for that reason, and not any of my own, God. I pray that you would illuminate us as we look at this great text, that we would hear what we need to concerning its witness to Christ for us. And this we ask and pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, let me go ahead and read the first are really that there's really just two sections in chapter 8 but let me read verses 1 through 29 here so we get it in one shot and then uh, hopefully to make it as clear as we can and the lord said to joshua do not fear and do not be dismayed take all the fighting men with you and arise go up to ai see i have given into your hand the king of ai and his people his city and his land and you shall do to ai and its king as you did to jericho and its king only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. 
And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, They are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people of Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. Verse 12, sorry. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. This is probably a part of that 30,000. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went on early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place, and as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that. For the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them, so they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword. All Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were twelve thousand, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day when the book of Joshua was written. Is what he means. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset Joshua commanded and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones which stands there to this day. What this story, I think, wants to highlight is God's help. Now that sounds at a first hearing, well, duh, right? That's pretty unremarkable. But 
not when we consider that what we're reading in the story tells us how important the help of God actually is. And that the help of God is the point is clear once again from the structure of verses 1 to 29. You have reassurance from the Lord in verses 1 and 2 that He will give them victory. Then you have these very specific instructions again on how to ambush I in verses 3 to 9. Then Joshua and all Israel go up in verses 10 through 13. And very quickly, in verses 14 through 17, they're given victory. In verse 18 is more specific direction from Yahweh, their Lord, to Joshua. And then the action of the ambush in verses 19 through 20. All of this coming from the Lord's very specific instructions. Then Joshua and all Israel turn back in verses 21 to 23. And we read of the defeat of Ai in verses 24 to 27, with the summary of it all given in verses 28 and 29. The structure is symmetrical. So at the head of both the major segments, you have the same thing. Yahweh's reassurance that He will give them victory and His instruction of the assault on Ai. That's in verses 1 and 2 and verse 18. The reassurance that are given in verse 2 sounds very much like what was given to them prior to the attack on Jericho in chapter 6, verse 2. A pattern of how this is working in Canaan is developing in the text. God is in control of these things to such a great extent, a perfect extent, that He specifies the exact moment for the counterattack to take place in verse 18. So, even the ambush, even the ambush is not Joshua, who's a great leader, great military leader, not even the ambush is his idea, right? That, that's not even his strategy. It was all a part of the Lord's instruction. It, it, all of it, even down to the details of how they'll do this, is the Lord's idea. And we should expect that because, as Dale Ralph Davis says, there's a conspiracy in the text to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us, quoting 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Even the cleverness to win the day belongs to God, beloved. Belongs to God. Just think about the timing and the necessity of God's help. As I mentioned uh, a little bit ago, God's full help now. Now, he's look, look at that. He's, he had said it in chapter 7, I'm not going to go with you if you don't address this sin. Now it's been addressed. And the first thing you hear as chapter 8 opens is God's comforting, assuring, promising word. We've got sin out of the way. right? So this is going to happen, and this is how it's going to happen. His full help comes after sin has been dealt with and after judgment has been executed. God isn't holding anything back now. right? They've taken care of it. Done. God's not going to you know, run their... Uh, you know, uh, run their noses through it. He's just going to come and help. Think about this now as you're you're seeing this develop here. Israel needs God's power to win the victory and His cleverness and His strategy and His detailed instructions even over little tiny I in comparison to Jericho. With God's great help and power, the mighty city of Jericho could be taken. Without God's great help and power, not even the smallest little settlement in Canaan could be taken. Just how dependent are we on God for literally any success, any fruit in our lives? 
Israel has nothing in and of itself to gain the victory in the land of Canaan. Not against Jericho, not against Ai. So the size of the cities they're attacking or the settlements they're attacking, if that's all Ai really was, an established one, but even this, they don't have the ability to do that on their own. They don't even have the ability to come up with strategy on their own. They're completely dependent on God for every little detail. And now that sin has been taken out of the way and God's wrath has been absorbed, God gives that help and God gives that provision and holds nothing back. Doesn't keep anything from them. Doesn't make them guess. Doesn't ask for contributions. Do this and do this and do this. And when they do that, you do this and we do this. And then this happens and that will happen. And this is how the Word of God works for the most important thing, which is the promise of taking the land. We have nothing in and of ourselves tonight to gain entrance into the true promised land. To gain victory over our enemies, much less to gain victory over even our own flesh. But when God deals with sin and judgment is executed, He comes in like a flood to help us and to give us the victory. This text is preaching this to us. Just how dependent we really are on God for everything He calls us to do and calls us to be and has made us. God doesn't God does not get us in position to do the right thing. That's not what the gift of the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. Right? Notice the level of detail here in His instructions. And I, th- I think sometimes we can think of life as a Christian like that in some ways. That, no, I, I, I can't be saved by my works. Absolutely not. But um, now that I have a new heart... I should want to do the right things and want to do good things and be pleasing to God, and we desire that. And I I think that's true. Your heart does change. You're given a new heart, a heart of flesh. But if you're honest with yourself, you begin to realize that there's still something missing because you can't keep getting it right. Right? Perfection doesn't come. Always knowing what to do doesn't come. So it's, it's not like God is giving us the Spirit as this help And now there's this synergy. Now that we're saved, there's a synergy taking place. There's me giving my best, giving my all, and the Holy Spirit is now helping me. And I I, I don't believe that's the way it works. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches us about our lives as Christians, where we should desire to please God and be holy and obey Him. Absolutely. No question. But if we're honest, we find ourselves, no matter how long we've been a Christian, with We might be able to pull that off sometimes, but most of the time, we don't. And sometimes we don't even know what to do or how to do what we're supposed to do. God doesn't give us the Holy Spirit and say, all right, now it's up to you. And I hope to see you there one day. Call if you need anything. I'm here to help whenever you need it. Right? You ever um, serve? Probably everybody in here has been on a job. They give you the training of what to do, and, and the boss or the manager or the trainer says, now listen, I'm going to let you, if you need any help, just ask me. And you find out on day one, okay, I'm going to need help with all of it. I can't remember what you said. I can't, I remember I got a job at uh, Big Lots. They're um, like like, uh, home office. It was in 
uh, Columbus, Ohio, southwest side on Georgesville and Broad Street. And I got a job there. This is when we were planting a church and I needed work. And um, I got a job as the the headline cook. And so um, I had to be there at 5 o'clock in the morning. And I remember my first day, for some reason, it's like a core memory. I remember my boss, Candace, the head chef, just being like, like, she's like, there is no time to think, to plan between now and when we open for breakfast. You have to crank out everything. You have two hours, no mistakes, no, uh, you can't stop. So the, the, all the trays of bacon, that's where you start. You get boxes of bacon, you get the, all the bacon goes in the oven, okay? And then you move right from that to pancake batter and this and that, and you're just, and never fit, you're never done by seven, right? And so you, and she, after, after the training, she's gone. She's like, you're here at five, not me. I'll be back at seven for breakfast. And so you, you, you know this feeling. You're like, man, I, I don't know what I'm going to do here. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. But that's not what God is doing in salvation. All right. I've gotten you to this place where now you can actually glorify me. Let me know if you need any help and if you have any questions. No, he goes with us. He's with us because he is for us. And this is all on account of Christ for us. That's why God is for us, for the sake of His Son. So our relationship with God isn't riding on our performance. It's riding on Christ for us. God loves His Son most of all. Note how generous the gifts of God are for Israel in this text now that sin has been dealt with and wrath has been removed. When God gave the victory at Jericho in 618, and 621, really to be specific, he told them, look, all the spoils of this victory are to be consecrated to me and to me alone. You, they're for me. They're for the, um, you know, the, um, supporting the religious ceremonies and things like that of, of Israel. But here, God allows Israel, tells them to take I spoil, take the livestock for themselves in verse two. And there's precedent for this, and, and we'll talk about why that's important here in a second. When Israel defeated King Sihon, is Deuteronomy 2, or, or yeah, 2, 34 and 35 report to us that God has done this before. So they, they know that, look, sometimes God is going to let us have the spoils of war, which makes you ask, why did Achan covet then? Right? Why, why did he do that? He, he knew that the Lord would provide. He knew the Lord is not going to withhold from him. It was just that in Jericho, God said, listen, all the spoils of this, as we start this campaign, these are mine. I'm going to fill up the bank for you guys here that, that by you consecrating everything you take in this city to me. So Achan doesn't have to covet. right? He should have believed God's word. Look, I will provide for you. I will bless you. You're my child. Why covet? That, that's how we look at covetousness or sin in our own life. What has, what is God not going to provide? What is God not going to give? There's no need to sin anymore. There's no need to go after, uh, to, to satisfy the desires of our flesh and crave the things of the world. They're not going to satisfy anyway. Achan didn't need to covet, as 721 tells us that he did. God had promised to provide. God would give. God would bless. But Achan didn't believe God's word. That's why he sinned. So he wanted to secure his blessing with his own hands, which is just what 
Adam and Eve did, what Abraham did. I, I, I know that you said you're going to do this, but it's, you're not doing it now, and so I'm going to need to act for myself. And so that, that sin, that idea that I can't take God at His Word, I can't believe the promise, that, that is in our DNA apparently from Adam and Eve. It's going to keep, that's what's natural to us. I, I hear your Word, I know that you tell the truth, but I don't have it, whatever it is right now, and so I'm going to have to secure it for myself. And, and we stop believing God's Word. And, and we know the, the pain it caused Achan's whole family here. And Israel's defeat at Ai. When the priority of the Lord is recognized, that is, when His Word is believed, and we, we take God at His Word, He pours out provision on His people. It, it's only when we doubt His Word and forget His gracious generosity and goodness and provision, that's when we get consumed by covetousness. Materialism, right? The love of money. Because maybe if, if I had more of that, I could get what I wanted and God doesn't answer my prayers. You know, I asked Him for uh, you know, a new wardrobe and I didn't get one, so I'm going to have to spend money I don't have, etc., etc. This is precisely where Satan attacks us. You know, but this is why I think it's, it's so dangerous. Back in the garden, the serpent... That's the, 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 I love the way the text, or love the way is a weird way to say it, but we need to heed what the text says there, that the serpent was more cunning than any of the beasts of the field. And we know from Ezekiel, of course, that it was Satan. Satan is more cunning than anything else God created, right? And what does he, what does he do? How does he tempt Eve? He, he places his emphasis on the one thing God restricted and ignored the rest of the garden that God had graciously given to them. That's what He does. He goes to the one place where God has said no and, and totally disregard, gets, wants you to forget the bounty God has said yes to over here. Right? Think about how that works out in, in our lives and with sin. Right? We, uh, we get caught up in all kinds of sin because Satan has convinced us that in this area where God said no, this one little thing He said, I don't want you to do that. When you think about what God has commanded, it's really not that crazy. Like, like look, look at our culture today. Our, the, the way our, our, just think of our, of our own nation. Just the, the sexual deviancy, the craving for something other than what you have and other than even what you are now. Right? Why? Because Satan is in the ear of people saying, look, you... This God is so restrictive and He doesn't want you to have nice things. He doesn't want to, and it's just, He's just, that's what He does. When over here is life, abundant life, you'll be safe and happy and satisfied over here. And what does Satan do? No, 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 that's, look at what He said you couldn't have. And we, we live by that. And that's what Achan did. Cost Israel a lot. In other words, we need to know how giving and gracious our God is if, if we're to live a life of faithfulness to Him. We're, we're going to have to know that promise and believe it and take Him at His word. The Gospel tells us everything we need to know and gives us every reason to believe God and take Him at His word. One commentator writes, contentment with God's goodness is our antidote for apostasy. I thought that was really good. Contentment with God's goodness is our antidote for apostasy. And, and look at how solemn God's judgment is that this is who we're dealing with, right? 
in verse 29. Let me read that to you again. And he, that's Joshua, hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded him. They took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones which stands there to this day. Now that um, probably sounds a little barbaric, right, on a first reading, but I think our it is kind of funny. I think I mentioned this before that our generation and our you know our current world has the audacity to read the Old Testament and say they were so barbaric. Like look around you. You're mutilating little children in the womb, out of the womb. I mean, we, we, we've committed horrible atrocities. Every government on earth has done that. Right? Every nation state on the earth is, has blood on its hands. I'm not being a conspiracy theorist. Like, it's a no-brainer. Right? And we have the audacity to say, I cannot believe that they... Yeah, they were pagan. These are horrible people. Right? These are not nice people. They're not, these are very barbaric people. And so, we don't really have much moral high ground here. So let's, let's move past that. But this kind of thing, the hanging of a king will happen again later in Joshua. By the way, if you'll notice back in verse 2, I think we need to assume that this is what they did to the king of Jericho also, but it just wasn't part of the, the text. Hanging a king, that is. But the hanging of the king was not the cause of his death. It was the result of his death. Uh, Kings were hung by the Israelites after they had been put to death. The law states in Deuteronomy 21, 22-23, that an Israelite offender, an Israelite offender put to death for a capital offense, could then be hung on a tree or post. Why would, you know, probably to serve as a warning, because we don't get it. We don't get how serious God's law is. We don't get how serious sin is. And so that's, a, that's one way to remind you, you know, one way to warn Israel not to break the laws that were punishable by death. Don't do that. This was the end if you're found out. In other words, this is what, this is, if you get caught, which you're probably going to get caught, this is, this is what happens to you. But the corpse was to be taken down before nightfall. The Bible says, Deuteronomy 21-23, anyone who is hung upon a tree is under God's curse. Now, the body wasn't a curse of God because it was hanging on a tree. It was hanging on a tree because it was a curse of God. A commentator named P.C. Craigie writes about this. Um, and the body isn't a curse of God because the person was dead. All people died. It was a curse because of the reason they had died. They had committed crimes against God's law. That's how we should think about the hanging of the king of Ai. It's a very solemn sign to Israel that the king of Ai then and his people and all Canaan for that matter stood under God's curse and judgment for not worshiping him and for rebelling against him. The king of Jericho, I think, probably. The king of Ai, clearly. These are warning posts. There's posts throughout the conquest of God's faithfulness. There are posts throughout the conquest of God's judgment. And both have to be heeded, right? It's a very solemn sign here. And we probably wouldn't have any fear of sinning against God's law at all if we weren't aware in some measure of the consequence. And so I hope maybe in your mind, when you when you hear the Scripture about being hung on a tree, hung on a tree, 
hang on a tree, hang on a tree. I hope your mind goes to the cross. When Jesus hung on the cross, when He hung on a tree, what were we learning? What did we already know that was teaching us how to see that and how to think of it? How seriously God takes sin. How intense His wrath is against sin. And the consequences of rebelling against Him. Jesus became a curse for us in Galatians 3.13. Jesus had no sin but ours. And He hung on a tree. Cursed by God for us. That should have been us. History should just be a long litany of crucifixions of human beings. Adam forward. Right? And what happened that it's not? He became a curse for us. He literally even hung on a tree for us. So let us not take God's judgment lightly. And let us remember the significance of such a thing. In God's justice, one of the things you're seeing at I, at the king, in God's justice, in his design, sin has to be dealt with. And it was brutal and violent and awful. But it has been dealt with now. Now, for all who will receive this gift, there's only God's help and provision for you. Never again God's curse on you. That's what Jesus did by becoming a curse for us. What we justly deserve has been poured out on Him. Canaan was being put on notice here. This is the sentence for the crime of worshiping other gods. Before we look at verses 30 and 35 here, just consider once again how God has given His people all the reason for their praise and their worship in this little passage. The structure of the narrative is it's set up to demonstrate, look, God helps, He provides, He gives His Word and His wisdom again and again and again. And now as the chapter in this episode closed, we see once again just how crucial the Word of God is for His people. So in verse 30, at that time Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. So, whoa! We just shot 20 miles north of here in one verse. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written. Notice the tightness of that. Just as as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man is wielding an iron tool, and they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he, that's Joshua, wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges. So, again, notice that every time you see it. There's already non-Jewish peoples in the Old Covenant community. They're there. right? There's descendants of Egyptians here probably and some others stood on opposite sides. Let me, in 33 again. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, 
according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. So again, it seems completely out of place. Um, shift is very abrupt. I do believe, though, that this is what the author intended. I don't believe that because of my great mind. I believe it because if you study the... there's a, Again, the, the people are always trying to throw doubt on things like dates and numbers and, and places. And here it's like, well, clearly Joshua was not written under God's direction because this little part here has been added and it's completely out of place. And so you can't trust anything the Lord says. No, it, it's... In verse 29... Like I said, you're standing at the gate of Ai watching the king receive his last rites, if you will. Now in verse 30, we're whisked away all the way to the shadow of Mount Ebal, which is near Shechem, where we hear once again of the blessings and the curses of the law, the Torah of God. Again, that's more than 20 miles north of Ai, out of nowhere. It only seems out of place, though, if we forget the overall structure of chapters 5 through 8 as a whole in Joshua. We're, we're divided up when we look at it by weeks. 5 1 to 8 35 are one tight section. In fact, let me read 5 1 to you quickly here. This is how this section started in the book of Joshua. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, we've met two of them, we've killed both of them the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over. Their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. And what follows here to the end of chapter 8 is God going, that's what I mean. This is what's happening. This is what is taking place here. That's the thesis statement from there, from 5.1 to 8.35. In 5, 2 through 12, after that announcement was made, the covenant sacraments are prepared, right? Passover, circumcision. Then you have victory in battle, as God promised, because their hearts are melting in fear. You have cursing for failures that fell on them, God's wrath. You have restoration. You have the help of God in Israel's success once more. And then comes the conclusion of God's covenant word to His people here in 8, 30 to 35. These verses are the end piece of 5, 2 to 12. It sure looks like chapters 5 through 8 are one carefully constructed block of material. And the reading of the covenant law, the terms of the covenant in 830 to 35, closes off this large section that was introduced by the covenant signs again of circumcision and Passover. In other words, these are my people and this is what's happening. I think that's what you get in total, in chapters 5 to 8. This is how it's going to go for God's people. So long as they are obedient to His Word and faithful to His Word. The Canaanites are going to remain terrified of them. He's going to give the victory. He's even going to tell them how to get the victory. So, that's notice that. you know, it's, it's, it's not just, look, you're going to win. It's like, here's how you're going to win. Down to the details. This is what Israel's covenant God is doing and what He's going to do in Canaan for His people that He's consecrated to Himself. Remember, Israel had just experienced God's wrath in chapter 7. 
and then the blessing of his help again in chapter 8. So what would be more appropriate at the end of this episode for them to travel up north and hear Joshua read at that point the blessings and the curses at the spot where they were first given of the Torah for faithfulness and unfaithfulness to God, respectively. This is what God has done. And we've seen what happens if we follow. We've seen what happens if we don't. So let us be reminded of what it means to be the covenant people of God. But the little section does give us a, a jolt, right? At least if you're reading it straight, you're like, well, okay, all right. That feels a little out of place. But because... You know, we're used to this pattern developing here. We, when you get to the, here's what happened at I, you're expecting to hear the next city, the next conquest. And instead, it's like you're watching a war movie and then there's a, a commercial. You know, it, 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 you think, think of it like a, a you know, you, victory instructions, victory instructions. But instead, we go from conquest back to covenant. Here at the end of chapter eight, yeah, it's, it's like a special report. You've been watching something before. I I don't know why. This, I will never forget the special. This isn't even a big deal. The, the the special report about the earthquake during the World Series in the early '90s in Oakland. I was watching Rescue 911, and I was so mad that I like, well, what happened in the story? Because they interrupted it with the earthquake. You know, I. I but it's it's like that. It's like this jolt. Special reports remind us of reality. That, oh, that's right, there's, I live in a world and there's people and things are happening. Because you're engrossed in this movie, you're engrossed in this show. That's how this is functioning here. There's something going on beyond what our eyes might be fixed on or trained on. Covenant obedience to God takes precedence over military victory. Military victory is a no-brainer here if you're following the Lord. But where does that victory come from? Why do they have it? Why do they keep winning? That's what these verses are doing. Because military victory in Israel, we know by now, the second, con- second battle in the land, that Israel's military victory isn't even a possibility if God isn't honoring the covenant He made with them. That's how dependent they are on Him. Whether the city's huge or small, they aren't winning if God is not helping them, if He's not with them. And by help, we mean doing all of it. They're just instruments of it, of what God has already declared to be the case. Therefore, they're not going to lose in battle. If God says, I'm giving you the victory, you could fight like a nimrod, and you're going to win. Right? You could, you could go to a, a gunfight with a knife, and you're going to win if God has given the victory. What is happening here, then, is... is the author is telling you, look, what's going on here is not the result of the skill and power of a people. It's the result of the faithfulness and power of this Almighty God who is filled with steadfast love for these people. The faithfulness of God is the basis of the victories in Israel just as it is tonight for all of ours. By placing this little section here, the author reminds us that Israel's success isn't really a matter of knocking off Canaanites, but is in their being submissive to the Word of God. That's where all the 
all the power is, all the victory is. It's as if the author is saying, stop the war for a minute and just remember the covenant. Remember God's law. Remember my word. Remember the terms of all this. And the word of the law read by Joshua here encompasses everyone in Israel. Youngest to oldest, native and sojourner. So God's law isn't just to set up this nation, which it is that, but it's for the very household in Israel. Every relationship in Israel, every age group in Israel, the Word of God is sufficient. They must all give obedience. We learned that with Achan. Right? That everybody better be obedient. Like, you understand how precarious this is. They all have to be obedient to all of God's Word for all that is going to happen. And newsflash, you know this, they wouldn't be. And they didn't keep the law. We need a Savior to keep the land, beloved, to get home where we have one. Right? Everything that would separate us from God, that's been dealt with. So when you sin and you blow it again, the covenant doesn't need renewed. It's sufficient. Alright? Don't live like that. There's no if-thens in the New Covenant. The Old Covenant is full of them. It's, we, again, we, we, we don't want to sin. Like, should we, so should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Certainly not. But you're going to. That's the thing. No, I, the, the Christian doesn't set out to say, look, I have grace. I'm going to sin and do whatever I want. No. But you're going to. And if, if all you did was sin once in a day, then what I just said is true. And is there anybody in here that's willing to say when they hit the hay, I think I only sinned once today. Right? No, none of us in here. I don't know of any Christian, seriously, that, that would ever say that. Well, Actually, no. I mean, I think we've had we've had someone in here, like they don't go here anymore, probably because they're mad at me for preaching stuff like this, but that said, I have not sinned in two weeks. That was actually said in a Sunday school class. Well, partner, you just did, but that's, you know, whatever. But look, it it, it is not that God doesn't care about our sin now that there's grace. Grace is there because sin is such a big deal to God and we are helpless in front of it. Whether it's the little sin, like little I, AI, whether it's the little one, the little indiscretion or irresponsibility that we're daily messing with, dealing with, the times that we sin that we don't realize it in the moment, then we look back and think, I, I was wrong there. I sinned against you, Lord. It doesn't matter if it's the little I sins or the big Jericho sins. The wrath has been dealt with. And the sins are always sin. They're always awful. They're always treason. They're always rebellious and disobedient. Don't become comfortable with it. Not because God is going to renege on His promise, but because they will wear you down and kill you and make you doubt His goodness 
and corrupt your life and ruin your relationships. Don't sin. But you will. And, and stories like this remind us of how it would be if Jesus wasn't there. And proclaim to us how it is now that He is there and won't leave us or forsake us. After sin has been dealt with and judgment has been executed, all that remains for us is God's presence and God's blessing. Everything God promised to Abraham, He has declared as yours in Christ. You will receive it despite your messing up. Now, now again, when you hear that, that doesn't make you want to run out and sin as much as you can, does it? It makes you hate it. Lord, I don't want to dishonor that kind of grace and that kind of love that you have for me by sinning and coveting things that I don't even need to have. Like, I, I, I want to live a life worthy of that kind of love and grace. And that's awesome. And that comes from the Spirit. But you won't do it. And neither will I. Don't become content with that. Don't say, well, who cares? Know that you have a Savior. And He's not going anywhere. All, all the punishments that should be levied against you for that, that what you're doing today, that was addressed and punished as though it was you on Christ over 2,000 years ago now. It's not that God doesn't take it seriously. Jesus hung on a tree, cursed, because of how seriously God took the sin I commit today, let alone yesterday and tomorrow. Just don't run from Him when you blow it. Don't do that. Confess, repent, desire change. Yes, beloved, a thousand times yes. But you don't ever come to, you're not going to come to a place unless you're self-righteous where you think, I am actually doing pretty good on my own. Lord, if I need help, I'll call. Joshua 8 is this beautiful reminder that God doesn't just forgive our sin and walk away, but forgives our sin precisely so everything that would keep Him from wanting to be with us is gone. And He's the one who removed it. So He's not going to begrudge you for still struggling with it. From His perspective, it no longer stands in between you and Him. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. Right? All the sin has been cleared out of the way for you. All the guilt has been atoned for. All The whole price has been paid. It's finished. It's finished. You have everything you need. There's no need to covet the world. There's no need to fear being hung on a tree cursed by God because you're a mess. Jesus became your mess. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that. All we have now is the help and steadfast love and fellowship and covenant promise of God. Yes, we must heed His Word. But it is a word of promise. It is not a word of law. So you rest easy, beloved children of God. He is for you. He is for you. Even though, like me, you're probably a mess. He knows everything about you. Down to the details of how rotten you really are. And He loves you with a love so unearthly 
it cannot be described, especially by some frail preacher like me. All right? He is for you. It is finished. The victory is yours. You walk in peace.